0: You're listening to Rhodey Radio, Rhode Island Library Radio Online. Hello there, my name is Patrick Elliott. I am the technology coordinator at Barrington Public Library in Barrington, Rhode Island. In today's episode, you're going to be hearing from Doug Swizz. Now, he's the assistant director and head of collections management here at the library, but he's also our resident film buff. Doug runs a fantastic lecture series, which traditionally involves a screening in our auditorium paired with a pre-film commentary. However, since the pandemic, our auditorium has been closed to the public, and as such, Doug hasn't been able to hold his film lecture series in person. I know, kind of a bummer. But the reasonable person adapts themselves to the world, as they say, and Doug is nothing if not reasonable. So, with that, we present to you an on-the-go lecture for the 1954 film, A Star is Born. Perfect for you to listen to before streaming the movie from home or checking out a copy from your local library.
1: I hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone. I'm Doug Swizz, and I'd like to spend some time today talking with you about the making of the 1954 motion picture, A Star is Born, which starred Judy Garland and James Mason. Now, this oft-told tale has had many versions that have appeared up on the big screen. I think you all know it's the classic story of a young woman who is brimming with talent, but who has not been able to get that big break, you know, that catapults her to stardom. And the established star whom she meets, who sees something in her that perhaps she doesn't see herself, and who is able to use his influence in the industry to get her her big break. And unfortunately, her star rises, his star wanes, largely because of the fact that he is addicted to alcohol. Now, the very first version of this story appeared on film almost 80 years ago. It was a version that didn't even have the title, A Star is Born. It was called, What Price Hollywood? But then in 1937, A celebrated version appeared called A Star is Born, and that was with Frederick March and Janet Gaynor. In 1954, Judy Garland and her then-husband Sid Luft decided to make a musical adaptation, if you will, of the dramatic story. Barbara Streisand had a crack at the story in her 1976 film version, co-starring Chris Christopherson which transferred the story to the world of rock music. And then in 2018, was the most recent version, and that version starred Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga, and it too was set in the world of music, the music industry. But I'm here to talk to you about the 1954 version, starring Judy Garland and James Mason, and this came at a very pivotal time, in Judy's career because just a few years before Judy had been released from her contract with MGM studios and that was a, a movie studio with whom she had been signed for about 15 years she was one of their big stars right she had starred in such famous movies as the Wizard of Oz meet me in st. Louis She'd made several movies with her friend and colleague, Mickey Rooney. But unfortunately, what happened over the years was that they kept Judy, the studio did, they kept her very, very busy. I think we like to often think that the life of a movie star is just so glamorous. But when you're assigned to a major movie studio, as Judy was, that churns out movie after movie, the pace is rather reckless. You know, when Judy wasn't working on rehearsing the acting and singing and dancing parts of a role that she was playing, she was actually shooting before the camera, or she often had to go out on promotional tours to promote the film that she, you know, her current film. And, you know, she was signed when she was just a young adolescent. She was maybe 13 or 14 years old when MGM first signed her and it was hard. I think she felt deprived. She felt boxed in, overworked, and I think that the studio thought that it was doing a good thing. They decided that they didn't want Judy's energy to lag, and so they prescribed a regimen of amphetamines, of uppers, to keep Judy's energy intact. Also, When she was first signed, she was, as I said, she was an adolescent and she had some baby fat, you know, sort of related to her puberty, I guess. And so MGM wanted to have her lose weight. And of course, amphetamines would speed up her metabolism and contribute to weight loss as well. Now, the problem was that when Judy tried to then go to sleep at night, she was so keyed up that she was unable to sleep. So, again, thinking that they were doing a good thing, the studio thought, well, we want Judy to get her rest so that she'll be fresh to appear before the camera the next day. And so they prescribed a regimen of downers so she could sleep. But then, of course, the next day it was time to give her the uppers again. And so began a vicious cycle of drug addiction that lasted several years. And this became... More prevalent, this became worse as, you know, the 40s, the 1940s went on. Um, She began to call out sick. There were several days she just wouldn't show up and they would have to shoot around her. Or she would show up at the studio, but several hours late, go to her dressing room, maybe stay there for another hour or two, and finally appear on the set all the time, keeping her director and co-stars and movie crews waiting so that by the late 40s this had become more and more prevalent and the studio finally in 1950 had had it and they said you're too undependable you're too unreliable we are terminating your contract so the big question for Judy and her husband Sid Luft was well what's next then what's the next career strategy what should we do because obviously she was not going to be able to get another job at another studio I mean I think she had a black mark against her name throughout the industry so Judy and Sid thought that maybe it was time for Judy to return to the world of live performing you know performing live before an audience and um Before she had been signed to MGM, she actually had been a live performer in Vaudeville. She was part of a kiddie act. She and her sisters were billed as the Gum Sisters because that was their real surname. Judy was not born Judy Garland. She was born Frances Gum. And it was a song and dance act. And they played, you know, the whole Vaudeville circuit. So Judy and Sid worked with industry professionals to devise an act for judy she took that live show to the palladium in london where she wowed them then she came back to the states and she took over the palace theater for 19 weeks and you know laid them in the aisle as the expression goes and um eventually she took this act on the road to select cities across the country and that included a stop in Los Angeles where she was going to be seen, you know, the audience was going to be made up of former colleagues of hers from the movie industry. You know, co-stars, actors, actresses, producers, directors, uh, some studio heads. And like the audiences in England and in New York, the L.A. audiences were totally captivated by Judy. They could not believe how wonderful she was, how strong her communicative powers were. She seemed refreshed and revitalized and happy and healthy. So Judy and Sid thought they should strike while the iron was hot and that maybe now was the time for them to try to relaunch Judy's movie career. So they formed a production company and they bought the film rights to A Star is Born and they uh, partnered with Warner Brothers studio and the studio's vice president in charge of production, Jack Warner. Now Warner Brothers would foot a good portion of the bill and also distribute the film. The film's budget was set at $1.5 million. Now, because there was so much riding on the success of this picture, only A-list talent was signed. George Cukor, the women's director who had helmed movies featuring Katherine Hepburn, Ingrid Bergman, Greta Garbo, and recently Judy Holliday, was Garland's personal choice to direct. Moss Hart, the Pulitzer Prize winning playwright, whose stage shows included um, You Can't Take It With You and The Man Who Came to Dinner, was signed to write the screenplay. To write the music for the film, Harold Arlen, who, among other things, had written the music for Garland's The Wizard of Oz, was hired. And Ira Gershwin came on board to write the lyrics. Now, of course, he had written the lyrics in conjunction with his brother George Gershwin's music back when they were a songwriting team, back in the 20s and 30s, before George Gershwin's untimely death. The best creative and technical Personnel were recruited to handle things like cinematography and production design, costumes, and so forth. James Mason, the well-known British actor, was signed to play Judy's co-star, the character Norman Maine, who helps her launch her career but then sees his own career crash and burn as a result of his alcoholism. Now this movie had a very long shoot, nine months in fact and the budget eventually swelled to around $5 million. Of course, critics were quick to blame the drawn-out shoot on Garland. And while she did have some culpability in this area, which I'll address in a moment, there were other causes for the drawn-out production. You have to remember that the early 1950s was the era during which the movie studios would try anything to lure Americans away from their TV sets at home and back into cinemas. Such gimmicks as 3D films, stereophonic sound, and big picture formats were touted as things that television couldn't do. And there were all kinds of competing widescreen formats introduced during the 50s, 20th Century Fox had the exclusive rights to Cinemascope. Paramount had something called VistaVision. And Jack Warner, not wanting to have to lease Cinemascope lenses from his competitor, 20th Century Fox, had his studio launch something called Warnerscope. However, after nearly two weeks of shooting using this Warnerscope process, the footage was deemed unsatisfactory and so warner gave in and decided that a star is born would be the first warner brothers movie filmed in cinemascope but unfortunately the footage that had been shot so far was scrapped and those scenes had to be filmed again using cinemascope now because cucor and his cinematographer were unfamiliar with cinemascope it took them that much longer to set up shots before the cameras began rolling the way that you would compose a shot in the new widescreen format was vastly different from how you'd frame a scene in the old Academy Ratio, as they used to call it. So there was a definite learning curve that Cucor and his technicians had to master before they became proficient. And add to this the fact that Cucor was known for his rather deliberately paced manner of working, doing take after take, until he felt satisfied. And you can understand how the weeks may have melted away. But as I said a moment ago, it is true that Garland was partially to blame for some of the delays. She had a lot riding on this picture, namely her industry reputation, right? And the pressures that she felt were enormous, particularly as the shooting progressed. She was taking amphetamines again to stay camera slim, And these wreaked havoc on her well-being, causing her to be absent from the set. But I want you to know that when Judy stayed in her dressing room and wouldn't come out, it wasn't because she was playing the part of prima donna. Rather, she knew she was great. I think none of us would argue about her God-given talent. But I think that when she was in the dressing room, she was trying to summon the courage to go out before the camera because she knew that she had such high levels that she had to maintain. You know, her standards of performing were so great and she had to hit the mark every time. And that's a lot of pressure for a person to put on themselves, you know. And then when she finally did appear before the camera, she, you know, I think Judy Garland was totally incapable of delivering a perfunctory performance. She gave a hundred... 110 percent and the problem though was that she gave of herself so fully that she was often too depleted to be able to continue right away in fact an actress who visited the set remarked quote that girl should work for two hours and then be taken home in an ambulance end quote now another reason for the lengthy shooting schedule was the born in a trunk production number the movie needed a big number to end act one one that would show us just what the movie moviegoers within the story witness at the preview showing of Vicki's first film that makes her suddenly hailed as a newborn star. So Judy and Sid turned to her old MGM musical mentor, a man named Roger Edens, to write a piece of special material that would serve as a kind of biographical rendering in song and in dance for the character that Vicky Lester is playing in her film, that is, the film within a film. And the result was a virtuoso 12-minute turn that left little doubt why Vicky is destined for great things... ...and which reminded us, the real movie audience, that Garland had lost none of her performing gifts since she had left MGM. So to rehearse and shoot this born-in-a-trunk sequence with its orchestrations and costumes and scenery added another seven or eight weeks to the schedule at an additional cost of around $250,000. But finally, despite all the delays and cost overruns, the picture was completed in late July 1954 and had its premiere in October in big cities like Hollywood and New York and so forth. The question was, would Judy, Sid, and Warner Brothers Gamble pay off? And the answer was a resounding yes. Moviegoers were ecstatic, and critics fell over themselves praising the film. However, the movie clocked in at just over three hours in length. And the movie theaters complained to the studio that this meant less showings per day, you know, because the movie was so long. So because the director, George Hukor, was off in India shooting his next film, Jack Warner took it upon himself to go in and cut out 30 minutes of film footage. Gone were two musical numbers, but more importantly, some non-music scenes which gave some insight into Garland and Mason's characters. But this plot backfired because as a result of this excise version, box office receipts actually decreased. Why? Because moviegoers became aware that they were paying money to see an abridged version of the film and so the film quickly fell off of the movie going radar. Now when the Academy Award nominations were announced early that winter and the film earned six nominations including Garland and Mason for their performances, hope was high that any wins would rekindle interest in the movie and that that would translate into increased box office. However, all hopes were dashed when James Mason lost to Marlon Brando for On the Waterfront and Judy lost to Grace Kelly for her her performance opposite Bing Crosby in a film called The Country Girl. Garland's loss was particularly stinging as she had hoped that an Academy Award would mean a reaffirmation from the movie industry that she was accepted back into the fold. Now there are a couple of theories as to why Judy didn't win. One is that Academy voters had only seen the truncated version of the film, which many felt diminished her performance as well as Mason's. Another theory is that the Academy was getting back at Garland for her unprofessional behavior. As I said, as production dragged on, she fell into her old habits of not showing up at all or showing up at the studio late and so forth. And so many people feel that this snub was the movie industry's way of punishing Judy for such behavior. The failure of a star is born to turn a profit proved the end of Judy's dream of re-establishing herself as a bankable movie star. She only made three more live-action films before she died in 1969 and lent her voice to two animated features. But there is a happy ending to the story because in the early 1980s, a film historian named Ronald Haver decided he was going to try to find the lost footage and reassemble the film to something approximating what had originally premiered in those first weeks of October, 1954. So he spent months scouring the Warner Brothers studios and warehouses and vaults and so forth. And he did find the two cut musical numbers. Um, He found a lot of the dramatic footage, but in those cases where he wasn't able to find the footage, what happened was he had unearthed a complete soundtrack for the entire three-hour movie. And so in those cases where he couldn't find the footage, he married the soundtrack, you know, the audio, with still photographs from the set. And this restored version of the movie had its premiere uh, at Radio City Music Hall in July 1983. Everybody was there. Judy Garland's daughters, Liza Minnelli and Lorna Luft co-star James Mason uh, Sid Loft who had been married to Judy at the time and who of course was her co-producer. He was there. Unfortunately director George Cukor had just recently passed away so he was not there although many felt that you could feel his spirit and presence in the auditorium. And the audience went wild because they had heard for years that you know this footage had been lost. So the idea that they could sit In a movie theater or in this wonderful palace known as Radio City Music Hall and see this close approximation to the original the original you know Megillah as they say was overwhelming you know and very fortunately this restored version has been made available in all the various home video formats you know video cassette DVD Blu-ray and when channels like the movie, uh, not the movie channel, what is it called? turn a Classic Movies, uh, when, when they show the film, it is often this restored version as well. So I hope that uh, I've given you some insight into the blood, sweat, and tears that was expended in making the 1954 A Star is Born. And I hope that uh, when you watch it again, assuming you've seen it, And if you haven't, what are you waiting for? But that you will keep in mind some of the um, emotions and some of the backstage or behind-the-scenes turmoil uh, that was going on uh, in order to make this motion picture. Thank you.
0: thanks to Doug Swizz for sharing his expertise with us and of course thank you for listening. You can visit BarringtonLibrary.org for more info on our upcoming programs which we hope one day soon will include an invitation for you all to safely join us in the auditorium but until then check out some of our outdoor events and virtual programming and be sure to subscribe to Roadie Radio for more episodes from other libraries around the state. The theme music for this episode is by Tim Moore. Roadie Radio is a project of the Office of Library and Information Services and is made possible by a grant from the Rhode Island Council for the Humanities.